Hello, welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a food service industry podcast by Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne, and I'm really excited about this episode because I'm speaking with Bin Lu, the executive chef of the restaurant at Blue Rock in Washington, Virginia. And we talk about a, a wide range of topics, but we really get into cooking and technique, which is something that even though this podcast is called In the Kitchen, uh, we don't always address. Sometimes we talk about running restaurants or the food service industry or whatever it is. But in this case, we uh, really dig into some techniques that Bin Lu is is working on and some different approaches he has to flavor. Uh, I, I This is really my wheelhouse. I like talking about techniques, uh, even though I, I went to culinary school and I've been interviewing chefs for a couple of decades, so I know a lot about technique, but when I cook, I actually don't, it's not very technique-y. I, uh, my basic meal, I take a quart takeout container and fill it with vegetables, always onions, sometimes uh, bell peppers, zucchini, uh, usually some chili, and then whatever other vegetable. Could be uh, eggplant, could be carrots, could be cabbage. Not too much cabbage, because that tends to overwhelm everything. Uh, toss in some garlic, and I just sort of cook that in a cast iron skillet in olive oil. And then I add some kind of uh, protein, uh, maybe ground beef and pork, maybe eggs. Uh, sometimes uh, I start with some other aromatics like ginger and turmeric, fresh turmeric, fresh ginger. Um, and, you know, I go from there. And it's always delicious because I also put in salt. You gotta put in salt. Um, but it's, it's about straightforward flavors and something that I don't doesn't require a lot of skill. Anybody could do it. And uh, that's really what a lot of my cooking is these days. Uh, Bin Lu, on the other hand, has some very interesting uh, approaches to uh, bringing out the best flavor uh, in food. And he's experimenting, moving away from some of the traditional approaches to, say, making a soup. Uh, And certainly he combines uh, flavors and ingredients from uh, many different culinary traditions. Uh, He himself was born in Shanghai, China, but he uh, moved to the United States when he was two or three years old, and he's a self-taught chef. Uh, Well, he says not self-taught, because how are you going to teach yourself? Anytime you work in a kitchen, uh, you learn from everybody there, and that's what he has done. Uh, And he has an interesting background, uh, having worked in D.C. at City Zen and Pineapple and Pearls uh, before joining the restaurant at Blue Rock. Uh, And now I'm going to let you hear from him because he's an interesting guy who I like a lot. Here is Bin Lu. Bin Lu, tell me about uh, you and your restaurant. You are the chef of the restaurant at Blue Rock in Washington, Virginia, right? Yep, that's correct. So tell me, tell me about this restaurant. Um, so some of the basics, you know, we are we're a thirty-two seat restaurant, uh, five room in. Uh, we also have a guest home that's available for kind of rental as a single unit. Um, and then our property itself is in Rappahannock County, which is 
Um, it's about two hours west of Washington, D.C., um, really gorgeous part of the part of Virginia that's really rural. Um, so like our property itself uh, is actually sitting on 80 acres of land um, right next to the actual main building at the end. We have, you know, we have a koi pond uh, past that a small set of vineyards that belong to us as well. Um, we have a, a guy that runs stables uh, that leases that has horses that he'll teach lessons uh, along with a polo ring. So there's a lot of it's very like. It's a very quaint kind of countryside sort of setting. Sounds great. Well, Washington, Virginia is a, quite a culinary hotbed, actually. The Inn at Little Washington is there too, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, the Inn at Little Washington is one of our neighbors uh, as well. We're right, we're about two miles east of a little town called Sperryville. Um, so there you've got, you know, some really great, some really great food op, uh, food operations like Three Blacksmiths, um, Sumac, uh, and then the Pendrewood Brewery as well. That's cool. And what is the food like at your restaurant? Um, so our restaurant, we have two food outlets. Um, we have a, a kind of a bar slash pub that we call the tasting room. So there you get more casual items like um, a burger, fried chicken, cheese plate, charcuterie. Um, that's also connected to a really large uh, patio that seats about 60 with lawn pods. So that's kind of great for if you just wanted to stop by, get a glass of wine and kind of just relax and sit outside and enjoy the nice weather. Um, at the same time, for our 32-seat dining room, we do a four-course menu with choices. Um, so it's um, it's kind of it's what you'd call a pre-fee. Some people call it a tasting menu. Um, essentially, it's kind of like a uh, you can sit down for a nice meal, but you get to choose. You're not kind of strapped into uh, to kind of what the the tasting means for the day or the week or what have you. I see. And uh, how long have you been there? Um, so we opened in October of not last year, but the year before. Um, and I've, I've been working on the project since December of 2020. So quite a while. A little bit. Yeah. And before that you were at uh, pineapple and pearls, right? I was uh, pineapple and pearls in DC. Right. And that I think is the first place that I saw where, um, people where the chefs were using, uh, like old cattle, like former um, former dairy cows. Was that pineapple and pearls or am I thinking of someplace else? Um, we were, so we were using dairy cow um, in one of our earliest menus, but you know, we weren't, you know, we weren't the originators for that. There, there's a couple, a couple really great chefs that were kind of, I think doing the pioneering work on, on figuring that sort of stuff out before us. That's yeah, but it's a, it's a cool concept. It's like eating cattle, eating beef, in a really different way. I mean, I've only, I think I only ate old cow once and it was super beefy, but kind of gamey, which I thought was really fun. Yeah, it actually has, a lot of people don't realize it actually has a really big historical precedent. So in Europe, you know, in Europe, in places where, you know, most people don't have access to like a big cattle source the way we do in America. Mm -hmm. And so more, more often than not, they had dual use breeds. And so the the breeds of the cat, like we have meat breeds for cat for cows, and then we also have dairy breeds for cows that specialize in one or the other. Uh, but in Europe, a lot of in you know the quote unquote old country, um, you have cows that were they were bred to produce milk, and so while they're alive, they could help sustain the farm and kind of um, provide products that way. And then once they weren't able to produce milk anymore, their like the their natural genetic makeup was such that the beef was actually really delicious too once they got to that age. Because they didn't separate them out as dairy cattle and beef cattle. They were just cattle. 
they well they don't they didn't have enough room they needed they need cow that could do both basically right that that makes sense and and obviously it was a lot much smaller operations than most of what we have now exactly exactly i mean it's just it's kind of how you had to do it in the old so to speak and uh how about your your food at blue rock we've actually featured it a couple of times recently you're uh, shaved tete de moine cheese rosette with black truffles and your so-called mac and cheese which was a whole uh, also had black truffles right uh it did yeah that was a little so like the tete de moine that was kind of a special um we were getting really great paragors for a while um you know the season ends more or less in february so we we're, were getting a lot of really great uh really great truffles that we just kind of wanted to feature on their own um and then the mac and cheese was kind of more they're kind of like more slipped in there so to speak and those are that's sort of a, a tube pasta filled with cheese and truffles, right? Yeah, yeah. So kind of, you know, looking at on that, it was kind of looking at, okay, you know, how do we, you know, with the menu, I always want items that guests can really relate to, you know, whether that's because it's, uh, you know, unfamiliar ingredients put together in a really familiar format or an idea that's really familiar and relatable with people, but done in something, you know, an interesting new way, um, what have you. So for that, you know, mac and cheese, traditionally, it's like an elbow noodle or like a baked casserole, something like that. Um, what we did for that one is we actually take ziti pasta. Uh, I actually buy, um, found it on Amazon, uh, but it's like a it's like a foot long ziti pasta. Oh, uh, and we actually blanch the whole thing and cut it. And then we pipe, we fill each noodle with a mixture of uh, celery root, black truffle, kind of stack all of that together and then give it like that, uh, give it like this really delicious um, and light cheese mousse that goes on top. So you kind of, it doesn't quite look like mac and cheese, but I think when you eat it, you start to get those references, kind of see how everything comes together. Sounds great. And and so how did you get your job at Blue Rock? Um, so that was a little bit of a little bit of serendipity um, and just kind of being in the right place at the right time. Um, so, you know, I had left Pineapple Pearls in uh, the fall of 2020. And I was just kind of figuring out, okay, what I what do I want to do next? Where do I want to go? You know, I had a couple opportunities pop up um, around the country, a couple that are international. And um, I had a friend who uh, he works on the front of the house side of things, and so he was doing a wine tasting with someone with a like a wine distributor. And the guy mentioned offhand, oh, hey, I heard there's a big uh, big property, like a big in property undergoing renovations out in Virginia. My friend mentioned it to me. I asked him to kind of dig up the name and I, I actually looked up the name and I found the old. So Blue Rock had been operating previously as a restaurant. Um, so I found the old website and there's just there was like a info at Blue Rock dot com. And I just shot them, shot them a cold email, introduced myself and then it all went from there. Wow, that's amazing, especially since like I try to contact restaurants a lot for various different reasons. And the contact us almost never works. Like yeah. usually like they've forgotten about it. They don't know that it exists. Yeah, so, I had no idea if I was going to get a response. I just kind of shot out the email and just was like, oh, let's see what happens. And this was pretty much at the height of the pandemic in the uh, fall of 2020. Yeah, right. pretty much. Like I think things were getting a little bit better. Some places had started reopening, but it was still, things are still very uncertain back then for sure. And and what were you doing before pineapple and pearls? Um, so most so basically before pineapple and pearls, I was working at a restaurant in DC called City Zen. Um, mm -hmm. it was uh it was under Eric, Eric Zibold, right? Eric Zibold, yep, in the Mandarin. Um, and then I had a little bit. I ended up with a little bit of a gap. So after City Zen closed, I had actually 
started talking to the people at Pineapple and Pearls and actually signed on with the project. Uh, but there was a gap of about, I think like eight months or so before there's going to be any real work. Uh, so immediately before Pineapple Pearls, I was actually on the opening team for the Manresa Bakery out in California. Oh, so you were getting around. Yeah. I mean, you know, just kind of looking for, you know, it was a, it was a little, little window of time and it was just a, it was an opportunity to kind of gain experience in a field that I didn't know too much about. Well, not knowing too much about stuff just sounds rude, but that's kind of your expertise because you're a self-taught chef, right? Like you didn't go to culinary school or anything, right? Yeah. So I didn't, you know, that's one of those phrases that I think is always tough, you know, because I didn't go to culinary school, but at the same time, I think anyone that works in the industry can tell you, like you learn, you learn from everyone that you work around, right? So you may not get formal training, um, but you basically get your training from on the job. You get your training from just the people you work with, work for, et cetera. It's true. You can't be self-taught. You got to learn from someplace. Exactly. Although, yep. Yep. Although you, uh, how, how did you start getting interested in cooking in the first place? Um, so that was something that kind of really came around in college. Um, so I went to the university of Virginia down in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, and so I wanted to figure out just how do I get better food? You know, the food in the cafeteria is not that great. Um, and it's like not the cheapest thing in the world. Uh, so I kind of figured at one point, you know what, maybe I should try just cooking for myself. Like it's gonna, it should taste better. I can get better food. Um, and I figured out right off the bat that I kind of had no idea what I was doing, you know, could make, make a single thing. Uh, so I started just doing my research and trying to, you know, figure out, okay, how does, how, how does food work? How does making something, taking something from like raw to cook work? Um, you know, and so this was back before food now. Food Network was even a thing, if you remember, back when it was like maybe a couple hours on like Lifetime or something like that. Um, you know, I think for TV shows, there was like two fat ladies. That was probably about it. I love um, that. Show. It was a great show, honestly. Um, you know, so I was I was finding cookbooks, finding, you know, the blogging scene was kind of just getting around. Um, so just finding whatever resource I could. Um, and so by the time I got to my third year of college, when everyone's kind of thinking about, do I do internships? Do I go to grad school, et cetera? And I, I kind of realized that I'd spent more time kind of thinking and learning about cooking than really paying attention to any of my classes. Um, you know, and you're, you know, you're 21, 22. So it's like, if you, if there's ever a time to do something that is like pretty risky and doesn't have a lot of payoff, like it's probably when you're young. And so that's, a, so then you just started working in restaurants. Yeah. So I, I you know, I've, Finished up, got got my degree, and then just started working in restaurants from there. So you look like you're about 24, but you are not. You are in your 40s, according to my math. Uh, I'm not not quite 40 yet. I'm getting there. Okay. Though. Yeah. Uh, so that that's cool. What what were some of the first things you like needed to figure out how to cook? Like sandwiches. What were you trying to do? Uh, you mean on my own or in a restaurant? On your own, when you were like, I don't know how to cook. How do I learn how to do it? Uh, I, I remember uh, one of the first things I tried to make where I was where I was like, this is really failing, was I tried to roast a chicken. Um, you well, know, that's and, hard. Well, it's uh, when you don't really understand. I, I didn't really understand using a thermometer or anything like that. So, you know, I kind of, you know, chicken goes in the oven. Color looks good. I take it out. You know, skin's cooked. You know, get through that first layer of the breast. That's fine. Second layer of the breast. Wow, that's pretty raw. Goes back in the oven it out okay that part's cooked okay it's still raw like deeper in so it's just it took a while it took a while and now you are uh, an executive chef so that's pretty cool now i can roast a chicken you 
that's good. Good job. Yeah, yeah it's Which, As as I said, it's hard. Like it's it's both basic and difficult. Like if you can make a good roast chicken, then no, no, that's very true. Yeah, people say that sort of defines you as a chef if you can roast a chicken or make an omelet. It kind of depends. Right. Yeah. For sure. Although you're originally from China, right? Where roast chicken they roast chicken, but I don't, that's probably not the defining characteristic of a good Chinese chef. Yeah, so uh, I was I was born in China. I moved to the states when I was about two or two or three. Oh, so you don't have a lot of memories of uh, of China when you were two or three. I don't, I don't, you know, my uh, my whole extended family's back there, and I've been back a few times. What what part are you from? Shanghai. Good city. I I studied in uh, China for my junior year of college. I was in Nanjing for one semester, so not far from Shanghai and in Beijing. Oh, very cool, very cool. What well, what was it like back then? insane i think my iq actually went up from being in china just because everything's different like how you count to 10 on your fingers is different everything yeah and so uh you know it was total sensory overload Mm -hmm. but gave me great perspective and i think it's good to be a minority someplace so that you understand what it's like to be a minority and then you know and uh yeah, I came back smarter and more aware of everything around me. And anyone listening, go go abroad for a while. It's good for you. Yeah, no, I I think everyone should travel, regardless of your age. Like, you know, travel, go somewhere where you can get around, go somewhere you can't get around. You know, I think it's really important for, I think it's really important for all of us. I remember when we were in Nanjing, we were traveling somewhere. We traveled all the time on weekends. And it was really hard because China's a big, crowded country and highly bureaucratic and at the time not super efficient so you know you had to stand in line for several hours to get a train ticket for example from Nanjing to Shanghai and I remember we were going somewhere we met this one giant American guy like he was like six six mm-hmm. he didn't speak any Chinese and he was just sort of like working his way around and doing stuff and traveling and and was we were very worried for him like we don't know how he did it because we were all students of Chinese so like we could function. So we just like wrote down in Chinese the names of places for him to go when he was somewhere. So we could change yeah. yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's a tricky thing for sure. And especially, you know, especially back then, you know, every, when I have gone back, like every time, even though it's the same city, I barely recognize it because it, it changes so much so fast. Um, so even back then, I can't imagine what the, you know, what the infrastructure was like, as far as like getting around. It, it was challenging. Yeah. But that, sure. was part of, that was part of the fun. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, because for for us, we were students. It wasn't life and death. We'd figure it out. It would be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a really fascinating year. But let's get back to you uh, and uh, the restaurant at Blue Rock. Tell me tell me more about uh, what kind of dishes you serve. And as you said, it's a, it's a prefix thing. It's like a $119 prefix. Is that right? Yeah, so it's $119 um, with... Four courses, and then each course, so first, second, and fourth course have choices. Um, the first course is kind of like our um, appetizer. Second course, we do like a pasta, starch, that sort of dish. Third course is our main entree. And then fourth course, dessert. Um, and so, basically, yeah, exactly. So the idea is kind of like you can come in, you can, you can choose. So if you're feeling in a certain mood, want to try this thing, but not that thing, like, you know, you, you're free to do that. But then at the same time, you know, you're going to get kind of the a full meal. You know what I mean? Um, 
And then so as far as how the menu is designed, you know, we change we change the menu pretty frequently. You know, I try to keep have one dish component element change basically on a week to week basis. Um, the idea there, I mean, it's a couple, a few different things kind of in play there. You know, one is we are so remote. Um, we have a lot of great farms around here, but they don't, you know, they're not big, they're not big operations. So it's not like they're making the same thing year round. Their products can change week to week. Like sometimes they have a frost overnight, something dies, an animal gets in, uh, it's all gone. Or like we have a heat spell. So everything start, suddenly starts shooting up. Um, and I want to make sure that we can respond to that, you know? And so when we get those notices from the farms, then we say, okay, you know, we, we got to figure this out, you know, at the same time, you know, with the style of the menu, I don't want it to be the sort of place where it's like a tasting menu that changes like four times a year. So you come in once you're like, okay, I don't, you know, there's no point coming back for a while. You know, right. I, I want people to be able to feel like they can come back very often. Um, Cause I just want it to be, you can come in for a birthday anniversary, but I just wanted to also be a place you can come for just a nice meal, you know? And so I, I feel like, you know, if you, if, if the menu's changing and you feel like, and you can come back as often as you want and still try different things, it's a better, I think it's a better value for guests that way. Um, and they can be more frequent guests. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it, and like some people want to come back and eat the same thing every time, but I think a lot of people don't, they want to try new things. They want to, you know, they want to have a different meal. And so I want to make sure we can offer that. Um, and do you have a lot of regulars? Yeah, we have a, we actually have a very solid uh, a local regular clientele, um, which I, which, you know, I always find pretty, uh, pretty flattering just because where we live, it's a very, or where the restaurant is, it's, it's not very populated. I mean, there's just not a lot of people around here. So, you know, to have people come back uh, more than once, more than twice, more than five times, I think is a, a huge compliment for us. You know, I think for any restaurant business, you know, it's, it's easy, it's easy enough to get people to come in and try it once, but to get them to come back, that's when you kind of know that, you know, you're doing something right. When, and they can drive not too far and go to the end of little Washington if they want. So they have, they have other options. Than right. So that's flattering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's huge for us. And so this is your first executive chef job, right? Um, not quite. So I was the, you know, when I started at Pineapple Bros, I was a sous chef. And then by the time I left, I was the head chef there. Oh, okay. Well, nice going. Yeah, uh, so, and how is your menu different uh, at uh, the inn at Blue Rock, or sorry, the restaurant at Blue Rock compared to uh, Pineapple and Pearls? Probably quite different, different city, different yeah. city. Yeah, it's very different. So pineapple and pearls was that was a it was a tasting menu is a single there's uh, there are no choices. Um, you came in and, you know, the menu ranged from nine courses to 15 courses, depending on um, kind of what we're doing. Um, and it was a very kind of formal, formal, showy, a lot of like table side presentations. Um, uh, things like that. Whereas the food at the restaurant at Blue Rock is a lot more it's tailored towards being more approachable. Um, kind of more focused, it's less focused on the show and more focused on, you know, uh, plates of food that are, that are interesting and they're thoughtful, but something where even if you weren't, even if you hadn't ordered anything yourself, if it just showed up in front of you, you'd kind of understand, okay, this is what I'm about to eat. You know, um, the, the goal here really being kind of, I, I want people to have, it's kind of not about them coming here and seeing, oh my God, look at what these guys are doing. It's more about people coming in and saying, I'm here to have a really great night, you know, and I want to make sure that that's, that's kind of more what I want us to focus to focus on delivering versus a like, 
come in for the show and the spectacle and all those things. It's not dum da da dum. Ben Lu eats his food. It's it's more centered on the guest. It sounds like exactly. Yeah, it's like you know, what do you feel like? What are you in the mood for? What do you want to try? Like you know, we're we're here to make sure that you have a good time. And it sounds like you change the menu a lot because if a, if an animal comes in and eats all the ramps or whatever from your farm, then you don't have any ramps. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, with a lot of those tasting menu style restaurants, like the, it's very difficult to change the menus that frequently. Um, and so a lot of times you can look at those menus kind of week to week, month to month, and you kind of see a lot of the same items. Um, and because, because we do the options, um, it's a lot more, it's easier for us to be really dynamic here. You can change it up and it's not a take it or leave it situation for your guests, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So what are what are some uh, menu items now available uh, at the restaurant at Blue Rock that you're psyched about? I mean, you're probably psyched about all of them, but pick a few. Yeah. So, you know, one of the dishes that just went on, um, uh, it was either last week or the week before, uh, we're doing a tortellini. Uh, so it's filled with a smoked potato filling um, to take potatoes, smoke them for about an hour, a couple hours, um, and then they get uh, they get cooked down, basically turned into a puree uh, with a little bit, little bit of butter, some fresh vegetables, uh, and we use that as a filling for tortellini. Um, so you get this really delicious kind of, safe, really safe, like with a smoke. Or my experience, like with smoking potatoes, um, you kind of get almost like this hammy flavor. So mm -hmm. you have a vegetarian feeling that kind of feels really savory, really meaty. Um, and then we actually, um, instead of cooking them in a sauce, we actually cook them in a broth that's a clarified consomme made from Parmesan cheese. Um, so we actually make Parmesan stock and then we clarify the traditional way you would a consomme. Uh, so it comes out really beautiful and clear. Um, it has all the fat is actually taken off of the stock, but it has uh, like a really, really distinct and really powerful flavor of Parmesan. So, so you take like the Parmesan rinds and you simmer that for however long. How long does it take to make Parmesan stock? Uh, it, it takes... Uh, it takes about an hour to make the stock and then about probably another hour to make the consomme. Um, we actually don't uh, with the amount that we need, we we started with rinds and we quickly ran out. So we're actually just microplaning Parmesan cheese now to make the stock. Um, oh, wow. The flavor, the flavor is actually really great that way. Yeah, so because obviously Parmesan cheese is full of uh, amino acids, all that umami stuff. So that's all in the broth. Or the yeah. concept, could you clarify it? Yeah, exactly. So I, I love it because it's a, it's a dish that eats with kind of a lot of richness, a lot of umami. Um, but not, it doesn't depend on fat to do that. It doesn't depend on fat or protein. So do you do anything with the leftover Parmesan cheese fat? Yeah, actually we, um, you know, once you, when you make the stock, the liquid will separate. Uh -huh. uh, so we'll actually lift off the fat. Um, and then when we're doing, when we're picking up the tortellini and the consomme, we actually add just like a little bit of the fat back to it. Um, and it kind of adds like this, you know, this kind of extra dimension of that Parmesan flavor and that richness. Um, that was something, um, something I think I'd heard about. Uh, I want to say it was Ducasse. It was either Ducasse or a Robuchon doing with their stocks. Um, they would take some of like for the chicken stock, they would make it super, super clear, but then they would add just a little touch of that chicken fat back to it. Makes sense, but but in a different in a different way. So the fat is more impactful, and you use less. Yeah. Yeah, it's a way you can like I think really finesse the flavors and textures together. Yeah, I like to save fat from stock on the rare occasions when I make it at home and and use it to cook potatoes or as the the oil for rice pilaf or that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, no, it's delicious. 
what else? What else is on your menu? Um, so right now, uh, we're doing a really lovely uh, chipino dish, or sort of a chipino dish. It's one of our main entrees. So, you know, chipino is traditionally, um, it's like a, a seafood soup or seafood stew. And for ours, we actually kind of turned that, that chipino aspect is more of a sauce. Um, so we have a piece of, uh, we were doing turbo um, kind of grill. We have a bichotan grill, which is like a, really like a high power Japanese charcoal grill. Um, so we were cooking turbo on that. We're doing uh, Alaskan halibut right now. Um, so the, the dish itself, uh, kind of really simply grilled piece of Alaskan halibut, um, steam poached and marinated gulf shrimp. And then for the chipino broth, we have a, it's a lobster stock that kind of gets for it's fortified twice actually. So we kind of make the lobster stock and then we fortify it like you would for like a jus. So, you know, fresh aromatics, more brandy, tomato paste. We do that once to bring it down, and then we actually do it a second time to kind of like further fortify and reduce the flavors. So you get this kind of really, really rich broth sort of sauce that kind of goes all over the plate. Um, and so when you eat all of that together, you kind of get you kind of get those those flavors and aspects that you get in a chipino. Um, but then it's it's more geared as a main entree. It's more geared towards like a protein and sauce. Um, and then like the vegetable they're using right now is a. Uh, uh, French white asparagus, like the really thick stalks are kind of just starting to come in. Um, and so we do, we do that kind of as the garnish for the plate. Just kind of steamed or what do you do with the white asparagus? Uh, we do it in a bear ghoul. Um, so it's like, a, a an aromatic, uh, broth made from white wine, white wine, you know, vegetable aromatics, spices, lemon zest, um, and then just lots and lots of olive oil, which kind of, and then we just really gently poach the, the asparagus into that. So you kind of preserve that really kind of almost juicy texture that you get. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're just infused with all those aromatics. Uh, so when you're, when you're reinforcing the, the uh, sauce, the broth, the sauce for the chipino, mm -hmm. does it help what, that you put herbs in in the beginning and then you add them later on? So you have kind of a multiple flavor sensory herby experience? So that, uh, that's actually an interesting point. Um, that's something I've been playing around with a lot you know, since I've been at Blue Rock, you know, when you learn, when you learn a lot of those, uh, call them fundamentals, whatever, you know, there's kind of a set recipe that you do, right? For your stocks, for traditional stocks, it's like, you know, add in your, add in your mirepoix, add in like eight, eight peppercorns, you know, three parsley stems, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you get that stuff drilled into you so much that you don't really question it. Um, and it's something I've been playing around a lot with here. Um, in terms of like the timing of aromatics, right? Because kind of that that that's the exact point that you're making is you know you add the you add an herb at the beginning of a stock and you cook it for eight hours. Well, like how much of those aromatics are really still there? Um, and I've actually found the same thing with vegetables as well. If you think about like if you're making a chicken soup, you know, and you add in those vegetables and they just until they're cooked and you eat it, you get this really like you know beautiful sweetness from you know all your onions and turnips and carrots, what have you. But then when you add them from the very beginning, cooking for a few hours, it's a it's a much different sort of flavor to it, you know. And so one thing I've been playing around with a lot of stock sauces and all of it really is kind of figuring out, you know, okay, do I want do I want the uh, the vegetable aromatics to be fully cooked out and just kind of have that kind of base sort of caramel sweetness, or do I want more of that kind of top end sort of aromatic quality of you know a leek and a turnip and things like that. Um, so it really varies sauce to sauce as far as what we do. Um, a lot of times for herbs, what I'll do is I'll actually take the stock or the sauce, finish it completely, um, 
turn off the heat and then throw in all the herbs right at the end. So it kind of steeps almost like a tea. And then you get those like really kind of, you get a lot of freshness that way, I find. And, and what kind of herbs do you typically use for sort of these European style dishes? It, yeah, it's really geared towards the actual, the final dish. You know, so like for the chipino, it's a lot of tarragon, a lot of tarragon, a lot of chervil, sort of those anise flavors. Because um, I think, um, I think that anise, that anise aromatic kind of works really well to kind of cut through the the richness and kind of works well with works well with the flavor of lobster, uh, lobster and shellfish, what have you. But then you know, other times it might be might be really thyme heavy, really parsley heavy. Um, sometimes there's just no aromatics at all. It really depends. So it could be in the future that with some dishes, instead of like the mirepoix going in at the beginning, it could go in at the end. Maybe you would shave no, carrots on top or something like no, that. That's exactly, that's exactly what I've done in a couple of cases. So like one of our, we're doing a spatesly right now as one of our repostic courses. Um, and that spacely actually goes, um, the rest of the, the other predominant flavors are basically black pepper, spatesly, foie, and dill. And so it's kind of, it was actually kind of thinking of that sort of like, matzo ball chicken soup sort of angle and so when we're doing the stock for that sauce that's it actually gets a bunch of ginger and green onion thrown in right at the very end so you get a lot of those really bright kind of like those really fresh elements that i think mix well with the pepper and the dill um that kind of does a lot to kind of keep the dish light even though it's get you know it's made with chicken stock there's some butter um and there's foie on the dish but you finish it with, with you said ginger and scallions, you said? Onions? Yeah, the stock, the stock itself is finished with ginger and scallions. So it's yeah. kind of like, it's kind of like you're, you know, there's, it's really interesting for me. You know, there's, it's a traditional spatesly dough, but we actually make it with masa flour. So it's hmm. kind of like you're like Chinese, Jewish, Mexican grandma making soup for you. So it's, it's corn spatesly with Chinese aromatics at the end. Yes. Yep. And then there's like dill and then it's kind of flavor, you know, final flavor wise is kind of inspired. It's more thinking about matzo ball soup, you uh -huh. know, kind of for me with the dill and all the black pepper, the chicken. That sounds amazing. Yeah, no, I, I think it comes together really well. We've, um, you know, one of the last garnishes is actually um, crispy chicken skin or it's two. It's, we take chicken skin from making the stock and we uh, fry it. So you get this, all this like really crisp, uh, really crisp bites from the chicken skin. Uh, and then we actually make a foie torchon that we freeze and then grate over the whole thing. So it just kind of really melts in right before it goes to the table. Ooh, that sounds delicious. And I, and I love that approach that seems very uh, toward the first quarter of the 21st century where you use whatever flavor component, whatever ingredient you want, and you don't necessarily worry about its national heritage. So you've got Mexican corn and Jewish matzo ball soup and Chinese aromatics, and it all tastes good together. So it doesn't even really matter what the origins are. Right. I think it's kind of like, you know, I think it just makes sense in this country. It's kind of thinking about that melting pot aspect and kind of you start with one element, kind of extrapolate, okay, it can go to here, then it can go to there, then it can go to there. Kind of as long as nothing really clashes, then, you know, maybe it can all work together. Yeah. Yeah. It's different from the, the fusion of the turn of the century when you got started, when sometimes it was so, sometimes it was great, but sometimes it was so self-conscious that right. you know, right. it didn't really go together. Yeah, I think if you do it well, you know, you can do it in a way where you don't need to advertise it, so to speak, where it's just, you're kind of bringing together all those elements in kind of a more seamless way, where it's just, it's a dish that tastes good. It's not, 
oh, this is like Japanese French or something like that. You know, right. I, I think I kind of think almost if you have to point it out, then maybe it's not it's not so seamless, you know. Right. And so, yeah, go back to the kitchen and practice some more. Or so, just kind of figure out like where you can really like synthesize and like make everything work together. Right. So what what are your plans for the rest of the year? What's what's coming up? Um, you know, so this is our, this is our second full year in operation, um, uh, which, you know, for, for any restaurant, like making it past your first year is huge. Um, so for this year, it's really about figuring, I think it's about figuring out, okay, you know, we, we think we know where a groove is and, you know, let's see if we can really make it happen here. You know what I mean? Um, you know, we got really great response for our guests in the first year. And so now it's, can we build on that? Can we keep it going? And can we really, um, I think build momentum and have it roll? You know, what I see a lot for restaurants is that it's it's such a huge thing getting past their first year, but it's really kind of year two, three, and four where you kind of, you know, you figure out as an operator, okay, can this, is this a sustainable thing? Can you make the business end really work to where it's a, you have a business that's going to go where you can actually feasibly look at year five through 10, you know what I mean? Whereas I think for a lot of people, it's if you, if you get through first, your first year and you're like, okay, cool, I got it, then year two, three and four is where it's really like okay we're starting to hit some real growing pains and like oh my you know what do we do and how do we how do we figure this out yeah i think if we learned anything in the past three years it's it's that we don't got it like there's always there's always stuff that we're going to have to learn and deal with and curveballs that are going to be thrown at us yeah exactly i think for for any restaurant small business whatever you know you have to if you're not kind of if you don't have that constant eye on growth you know and figuring out where you're going to find that growth consistently year over year, then, you know, you're not, you know, if you're not seeing that far ahead, then you're going to have a lot of, a lot of difficulties kind of pop up at the last second when really they're not, they're not really coming up at the last second. They're kind of things that have, that have been developing over time. When it seems like part of being a, a good chef is anticipating what could go wrong because something mm -hmm. always goes wrong and so figuring yeah. out how to to that is exactly i mean there's so there's so much that can happen that's out of your hands um that you really have to make sure that you're always staying on top of the things you do have control over you know yeah cool and that is a very positive note on which to end our conversation i think because we're about out of time anyway uh but it was really nice getting to getting to know you bin lu and i hope we can do it again maybe in real life sometime yeah no this is great uh, i'd love to you know, love to speak to you again. Hope you can get you to come out here on the property. You can kind of see it. I can show you around. That would be cool. In the meantime, good luck and keep on keeping on. All right. Thanks so much, Brett. You too.